Section twenty three of The Great Events, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume One. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Solon's Early Greek Legislation. B.C. 594, by George Grote, Part 2. Such were the measures of relief with which Solon met the dangerous discontent then prevalent. That the wealthy men and leaders of the people, whose insolence and iniquity he has himself severely denounced in his poems, and whose views in nominating him he had greatly disappointed, should have detested propositions, which robbed them without compensation of many legal rights, it is easy to imagine. But the statement of Plutarch that the poor emancipated debtors were also dissatisfied from having expected that Solon would not only remit their debts, but also re-divide the soil of Attica, seems utterly incredible nor is it confirmed by any passage now remaining of the Solonian poems. Plutarch conceives the poor debtors as having in their minds the comparison with Lycurgus and the equality of property at Sparta, which, in my opinion, is clearly a matter of fiction. And even had it been true, as a matter of history long past and antiquated, would not have been likely to work upon the minds of the multitude of Attica in the forcible way that the biographer supposes. The Seishatea must have exasperated the feelings and diminished the fortunes of many persons, but it gave to the large body of Thetes and small proprietors all that they could possibly have hoped. We are told that after a short interval it became eminently acceptable in the general public mind, and procured for Solon a great increase of popularity all ranks concurring in a common sacrifice of thanksgiving and harmony. One incident there was which occasioned an outcry of indignation. Three rich friends of Solon, all men of great family in the state, and bearing names which appear in history as borne by their descendants, namely Conon, Clanius, and Hipponicus, having obtained from Solon some previous hint of his designs, profited by it, first to borrow money, and next to make purchases of lands, and this selfish breach of confidence would have disgraced Solon himself, had it not been found that he was personally a great loser, having lent money to the extent of five talents. In regard to the whole measure of the Seisecteia, indeed, though the poems of Solon were open to everyone, ancient authors gave different statements both of its purport and of its extent. Most of them construed it as having cancelled indiscriminately all money contracts, while Androtion and others thought that it did nothing more than lower the rate of interest and depreciate the currency to the extent of 27%, leaving the letter of the contracts unchanged. How Androtion came to maintain such an opinion we cannot easily understand. For the fragments now remaining from Solon seem distinctly to refute it, 
though, on the other hand, they do not go so far as to substantiate the full extent of the opposite view entertained by many writers, that all money contracts indiscriminately were rescinded, against which there is also a further reason, that if the fact had been so, Solon could have had no motive to debase the money standard. Such debasement supposes that there must have been some debtors, at least, whose contracts remained valid, and whom, nevertheless, he desired partially to assist. His poems distinctly mention three things. First, the removal of the mortgage pillars. Second, the enfranchisement of the land. Third, the protection, liberation, and restoration of the persons of endangered or enslaved debtors. All these expressions point distinctly to the thetes and small proprietors, whose sufferings and peril were the most urgent, and whose case required a remedy, immediate as well as complete. We find that his repudiation of debts was carried far enough to exonerate them, but no further. It seems to have been the respect entertained for the character of Solon, which partly occasioned these various misconceptions of his ordinances for the relief of debtors. Androtion in ancient, and some eminent critics in modern times, are anxious to make out that he gave relief without loss or injustice to anyone, but this opinion seems inadmissible. The loss to creditors by the wholesale abrogation of numerous pre-existing contracts, and by the partial depreciation of the coin, is a fact not to be disguised. The Seisachtea of Solon, unjust so far as it rescinded previous agreements, but highly salutary in its consequences, is to be vindicated by showing that in no other way could be bonds of government have been held together, or the misery of the multitude alleviated. We are to consider first that great personal cruelty of these pre-existing contracts which condemned the body of the free debtor and his family to slavery. Next, the profound detestation created by such a system in the large mass of the poor, against both the judges and the creditors by whom it had been enforced, which rendered their feelings unmanageable so soon as they came together under the sentiment of a common danger, and with the determination to ensure to each other mutual protection. Moreover, the law which vests a creditor with power, or the person of his debtor, so as to convert him into a slave, is likely to give rise to a class of loans which inspire nothing but abhorrence, money lent with the foreknowledge that the borrower will be unable to repay it, but also in the conviction that the value of his person as a slave will make good the loss, thus reducing him to a condition of extreme misery, for the purpose sometimes of aggrandizing, sometimes of enriching the lender. Now the foundation on which the respect for contracts rests, under a good law of debtor and creditor, is the very reverse of this. It rests on the firm conviction that such contracts are advantageous to both parties as a class, and that to break up the confidence essential to their existence would produce extensive mischief throughout all society. The man whose reverence for the obligation of a contract is now the most profound, 
would have entertained a very different sentiment if he had witnessed the dealings of lender and borrower at Athens under the old Antesolonian law. The oligarchy had tried their best to enforce this law of debtor and creditor with its disastrous series of contracts, and the only reason why they consented to invoke the aid of Solon was because they had lost the power of enforcing it any longer. In consequence, of the newly awakened courage and combination of the people. That which they could not do for themselves, Solon could not have done for them, even had he been willing. Nor had he, in his position, the means, either of exempting or compensating those creditors, who, separately taken, were open to no reproach. Indeed, in following his proceedings we see plainly that he sought compensation due not to the creditors, but to the past sufferings of the enslaved debtor, since he redeemed several of them from foreign captivity, and brought them back to their homes. It is certain that no measure simply and exclusively prospective would have sufficed for the emergency. There was an absolute necessity for overruling all that class of pre-existing rights which had produced so violent a social fever. While, therefore, to this extent, the Seychetea cannot be acquitted of injustice, we may confidently affirm that the injustice inflicted was an indispensable price paid for the maintenance of the peace of society, and for the final abrogation of a disastrous system as regarded insolvents. And the feeling, as well as the legislation universal in the modern European world, by interdicting beforehand all contracts for selling a man's person or that of his children into slavery, goes far to sanction practically the Solonian repudiation. One thing is never to be forgotten in regard to this measure, combined with the concurrent amendments introduced by Solon in the law. It settled finally the question to which it referred. Never again do we hear of the law of debtor and creditor as disturbing Athenian tranquillity. The general sentiment which grew up at Athens under the Solonian money law and under the democratical government was one of high respect for the sanctity of contracts. Not only was there never any demand in the Athenian democracy for new tables or a depreciation of the money standard, but a formal abnegation of any such projects was inserted in the solemn oath taken annually by the numerous diecasts who formed the popular judicial body called Heliaea, or the Heliastic Jurors. The same oath which pledged them to uphold the democratical constitution also bound them to repudiate all proposals either for an abrogation of debts or for a redivision of the lands. There can be little doubt that under the Solonian law, which enabled the creditor to seize the property of his debtor, but gave him no power over the person, the system of money-lending assumed a more beneficial character. The old noxious contracts, mere snares for the liberty of a poor freeman and his children, disappeared, and loans of money took their place, founded on the property and prospective earnings of the debtor, which were in the main useful to both parties, and therefore maintained their place in the moral sentiment of the public.
and though solon had found himself compelled to rescind all the mortgages on land subsisting in this time we see money freely lent upon this same security throughout the historical times of athens and the evidentiary mortgage pillars remaining ever after undisturbed in the sentiment of an early society as in the old roman law a distinction is commonly made between the principal and the interest of a loan though the creditors have sought to blend them indissolubly together if the borrower cannot fulfil his promise to repay the principal the public will regard him as having committed a wrong which he must make good by his person but there is not the same unanimity as to his promise to pay interest on the contrary the very exaction of interest will be regarded by many in the same light in which the english law considers usurious interest as tainting the whole transaction but in the modern mind principal and interest with a limited rate have so grown together that we hardly understand how it can ever have been pronounced unworthy of an honourable citizen to lend money on interest yet such is the declared opinion of aristotle and other superior men of antiquity while at rome cato the censor went so far as to denounce the practice as a heinous crime it was comprehended by them among the worst of the tricks of trade and they hailed that all trade or profit derived from interchange was unnatural as being made by one man at the expense of another such pursuits therefore could not be commanded though they might be tolerated to a certain extent as a matter of necessity but they belonged essentially to an inferior order of citizens what is remarkable in greece is that the antipathy of a very early state of society against traders and money-lenders lasted longer among the philosophers than among the mass of the people it harmonized more with the social ideal of the former than with the practical instincts of the latter in a rude condition such as that of the ancient germans described by tacitus loans on interest are unknown habitually careless of the future the germans were gratified both in giving and receiving presents but without any idea that they thereby either imposed or contracted an obligation to a people in this state of feeling a loan on interest presents the repulsive idea of making profit out of the distress of the borrower moreover it is worthy of remark that the first borrowers must have been for the most part men driven to this necessity by the pressure of want and contracting debt as a desperate resource without any fair prospect of ability to repay debt and famine ran together in the mind of the poet hesiod the borrower is in this unhappy state rather a distressed man soliciting aid than a solvent man capable of making and fulfilling a contract if he cannot find a friend to make him a free gift in the former character he will not under the latter character obtain a loan from a stranger except by the promise of exorbitant interest and by the fullest eventual power over his person which he is in a condition to grant in process of time a new class of borrowers arise who demand money for temporary convenience 
or profit, but with full prospect of repayment, a relation of lender and borrower quite different from that of the earlier period, when it presented itself in the repulsive form of misery on the one side, set against the prospect of very large profit on the other. If the Germans of the time of Tacitus looked to the condition of the poor debtors in Gaul, reduced to servitude under a rich creditor, and swelling by hundreds the crowd of his attendants, they would not be disposed to regret their own ignorance of the practice of money-lending. How much the interest of money was then regarded as an undue profit extorted from distress, is powerfully illustrated by the old Jewish law, the Jew being permitted to take interest from foreigners, whom the lawgiver did not think himself obliged to protect, but not from his own countrymen. The Koran follows out this point of view consistently, and prohibits the taking of interest altogether. In most other nations laws have been made to limit the rate of interest, and at Rome especially, the legal rate was successively lowered, though it seems as might have been expected that the restrictive ordinances were constantly eluded. All such restrictions have been intended for the protection of debtors, an effect which large experience proves them never to produce, unless it be called protection to render the obtaining of money on loan impracticable for the most distressed borrowers. But there was another effect which they did tend to produce. They softened down the primitive antipathy against the practice generally, and confined the odious name of usury to loans lent above the fixed legal rate. In this way alone could they operate beneficially, and their tendency to counterwork the previous feeling was at that time not unimportant, coinciding as it did with other tendencies arising out of the industrial progress of society, which gradually exhibited the relation of lender and borrower in a light more reciprocal, beneficial, and less repugnant to the sympathies of the bystander. At Athens, the most favorable point of view prevailed throughout all the historical times. The march of industry and commerce, under the mitigated law, which prevailed subsequently to Solon, had been sufficient to bring it about at a very early period, and to suppress all public antipathy against lenders at interest. We may remark, too, that this more equitable tone of opinion grew up spontaneously, without any legal restriction on the rate of interest, no such restriction having ever been imposed, and the rate being expressly declared free by a law ascribed to Solon himself. The same may probably be said of the communities of Greece generally. At least, there is no information to make us suppose the contrary. But the feeling against lending money at interest remained in the bosoms of the philosophical men long after it had ceased to form a part of the practical morality of the citizens, and long after it had ceased to be justified by the appearances of the case as at first it really had been. Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and Plutarch treat the practice as a branch of the commercial and money-getting spirit, which they are anxious to discourage, and one consequence of this was that they were, 
less disposed to contend strenuously for the inviolability of existing money contracts. The conservative feeling on this point was stronger among the mass than among the philosophers. Plato even complains of it as inconveniently preponderant and as arresting the legislator in all comprehensive projects of reform. For the most part, indeed, schemes of cancelling debts and redividing lands were never thought of except by men of desperate and selfish ambition who made them stepping-stones to despotic power such men were denounced alike by the practical sense of the community and by the speculative thinkers but when we turn to the case of the spartan king ages the third who proposed a complete extinction of debts and an equal redivision of the landed property of the state not with any selfish or personal views but upon pure ideas of patriotism well or ill understood and for the purpose of renovating the lost ascendancy of sparta we find plutarch expressing the most unqualified admiration of this young king and his projects and treating the opposition made to him as originating in no better feelings than meanness and cupidity the philosophical thinkers on politics conceived, and to a great degree justly, as I shall show hereafter, that the conditions of security in the ancient world imposed upon the citizens generally the absolute necessity of keeping up a military spirit and willingness to brave at all times personal hardship and discomfort. So that increase of wealth, on account of the habits of self-indulgence, which it commonly introduces, was regarded by them with more or less of disfavor. If, in their estimation, any Grecian community had become corrupt, they were willing to sanction great interference with pre-existing rights for the purpose of bringing it back nearer to their ideal standard. And the real security for the maintenance of these rights lay in the conservative feelings of the citizens generally, much more than in the opinions which superior minds imbibed from the philosophers. Such conservative feelings were, in the subsequent Athenian democracy, peculiarly deep-rooted. The mass of the Athenian people identified inseparably the maintenance of property in all its various shapes with that of their laws and constitution and it is a remarkable fact that though the admiration entertained at athens for solon was universal the principle of his seisateia and of his money depreciation was not only never imitated but found the strongest tacit reprobation whereas at rome as well as in most of the kingdoms of modern europe we know that one debasement of the coin succeeded another the temptation of thus partially eluding the pressure of financial embarrassments proved, after one successful trial, too strong to be resisted, and brought down the coin by successive depreciations from the full pound of twelve ounces to the standard of one half ounce. It is of some importance to take notice of this fact when we reflect how much Grecian faith has been degraded by the Roman writers into a byword for duplicity in pecuniary dealings. 
the democracy of Athens, and indeed the cities of Greece generally, both oligarchies and democracies, stands far above the Senate of Rome, and far above the modern kingdoms of France and England until comparatively recent times, in respect of honest dealing with the coinage. Moreover, while there occurred at Rome several political changes which brought about new tables, or at least a partial depreciation of contracts, no phenomenon of the same kind ever happened at Athens during the three centuries between Solon and the end of the free working of the democracy. Doubtless, there were fraudulent debtors at Athens, while the administration of private law, though not in any way conniving at their proceedings, was far too imperfect to repress them as effectually as might have been wished. But the public sentiment on the point was just and decided. It may be asserted with confidence that a loan of money at Athens was quite as secure as it ever was at any time or place of the ancient world, in spite of the great and important superiority of Rome, with respect to the accumulation of a body of authoritative legal precedent, the source of what was ultimately shaped into the Roman jurisprudence. Among the various causes of sedition or mischief in the Grecian communities, we hear little of the pressure of private debt. By the measures of relief above described, Solon had accomplished results, surpassing his own best hopes. He had healed the prevailing discontents, and such was the confidence and gratitude which he had inspired that he was now called upon to draw up a constitution and laws for a better working of the government in future. His constitutional changes were great and valuable. Respecting his laws, what we hear is rather curious than important. End of section 23